0: Alright, let's go. Joshua 1. Joshua chapter 1. I'm cheating a little bit tonight. I know the bookmarks say we should be in Joshua 5 tonight. We will be there too. So we're going to combine Joshua 1 and 5. So that's how I'm cheating. I'm actually taking two chapters. I thought this was supposed to be 31 chapters. Yeah, 31 selections is a better term. So that's why I say I'm cheating. Alright, Joshua 1. Here we go. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, (laughs) Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place... Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. In other words, it's a lot of land. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. wherever you go now 513 read three verses here 513 when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand and joshua pretty bold character went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries and he said no I am commander of the army of the Lord now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him -what what does my Lord say to his servant and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so father I ask that you lead us in this adventure to the promised land and that as we go father take our sandals off Because we are indeed entering into your holy ground. So, the dirt and the stubbornness and the pride and rebellion, may those sandals come off tonight, Father. And may you see us as we are and clean us as we enter your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, here we are. The Promised Land. We're about to enter. Now, God's story is what we're looking at in this massive series. This is part nine. God's series basically is three parts. First is creation, rebellion, then restoration. In creation, God's a king. He gives his word. He creates a kingdom called the earth. And in the kingdom, he sets up a massive garden on a huge mountain that's gorgeous beyond anything man can comprehend. And there, God chose to live with man. And he gave the garden to man and said, Your job is to make this as beautiful as possible, to cultivate it, and to let it spread to the ends of the earth. That was creation. Everything looks like it's going to be awesome. But then the rebellion started. Man sided with the serpent, rebelled against God, and God had to kick him out of his Eden, his little temple garden, and man became an exile on the earth. And then we come to the third part, and God decides, I'm going to restore man through Israel. In other words, I'm going to bring man back to where he belongs, back to his home with me in an Edenic type of place to live with me. And he's doing this through the nation of Israel. They're becoming his tool to bring all of the nations back to God in an Edenic type of place where he lives. So that's where we are. Um, restoration is the bulk of the Bible. That's what a lot of is explaining. God's process of bringing us back to himself. And it is a tedious process of initializing something. And then failure, and then starting again in failure until Jesus comes and accomplishes the mission. So we're looking at Israel right now as God's vessel who eventually fails, but we're going to see how all this works together. So remember how uh, he delivered him from Egypt and he took him to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God was living on the top, it was like another temple, and he called him and he said, I'm making a covenant with you. And this covenant was a relationship. God was restoring Israel to himself at that moment. And he said, here's my covenant. It has two parts. I'm giving you a commission. You are my representatives to the nations that I love them and want to have them back. So that's what he told him in Exodus 19. If you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, my representatives to the world, that they can be restored with me. To help them accomplish this commission, he gave them the ten, quote, commandments, which I like to term as the ten conditions. These ten conditions were to enable them to keep the commission. In other words, if you break one of those ten conditions... How can you possibly be God's representative to the world? So it was to help them accomplish their mission. And to lead them into accomplishing the mission, Moses created the tabernacle, which was this overly glorified tent, made of more of gold than anything else, in which God chose to live in. And from it, as they met with him, he would lead them into the places they need to go so that they can restore the nations to God. That's what they're doing. And so now the tabernacle has led them through the wilderness up to the promised land where they are to live forever. And so the tabernacle is led. And we know that they enter into the promised land as part of their mission. So the land that they now enter is nothing less than the Garden of Eden. Part two. Part two. He's bringing them back to the Garden of Eden. He's restoring this nation. He's, he's saying to them, I want you to come to this land. It's, it's like Eden. And like I told Adam, I want you to cultivate this land and to cultivate a culture. A culture that enables the nations around your culture to come in and meet with me. To meet with God. So that they can be restored. Take this land and cultivate it so that it can be a culture of restoration. That's your job, Israel. That's why I'm giving you this land. And that's why we call it a new Eden. There's a couple reasons here for this. Um, When you get to the promised land, you see that, first of all, God lives there. We saw that right in our reading, right? In 5 verse 15. The angel told Joshua like he told Moses on Mount Sinai. Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. I live here, Joshua. You're about to take the first city in this land, and this is my land. Just like Eden was my land. You're entering into my place. Deuteronomy 8 verse 7 says this about Canaan. Canaan and the promised land, synonymous terms. That's what the land actually called, Canaan. You guys know that, right? Canaan, promised land? Okay, good. This is how it describes Canaan. The Lord your God is bringing you to a good land. A land of brooks of water and fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. That's a cool land. He basically described a land that's like Eden. Just prosperous, everything you need is there. This is the potential for you, Israel. Um, In Genesis 2... Verses 8 and 10, we see some words that describe Eden. Let me jog your guys' memories. For example, it says that God planted a garden, and that there were trees, and that there were rivers in Eden. Well, guess how the Old Testament describes the Promised Land? It uses the exact same language in Exodus 15, verse 17, and Numbers 24, verse 5 and 6. In those two passages, I'm not going to get go there, are not going to go tedious and get into it, but I just want to let you know that those passages borrow the exact same imagery from Genesis two to describe Canaan. The point of the author who wrote all these books, we believe Moses, is that the land that God's bringing Israel to is a renewed version. It's a new Eden. So God is starting all over. Where Adam failed to complete his mission of expanding God's presence across the globe, Israel is going to restart this mission in Canaan. This is a wonderful opportunity for Israel. And Israel's possession of the land. When they finally took it, when they conquered their last enemy and began to settle in, they built the tabernacle back in the land and started to worship God. It says in Joshua 18 verse 1, since you're in the book, you might as well just go a couple pages. Joshua 18 1, it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, the tabernacle. Here's the key part. The land lay subdued before them. The land was subdued. What did God tell Adam to do in Eden? Genesis 1.28. He told Adam, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Same Hebrew word. So what is the point? When Israel entered Canaan, they began to fulfill their mission. They began to subdue the earth and now what they're supposed to do is begin to create a culture in which the nations around them would come to Yahweh and be restored and live there. And the land of Canaan, God said, if you obey me and you complete your mission, it will begin to prosper and it will literally become like the garden of Eden. So if Israel is faithful to the task humanity will be restored, at least potentially, Of course, some people don't want to, and that's their loss. But <coughs> So let's look at Israel's commission in the land. Why is God giving it to them? Like I've said, here's the land, Israel, and your sole purpose, come in and cultivate a culture, such a culture, that the nations will find me in it. That kind of culture. That's a good mission. Israel gets there, and what do they find? There's already a people here. And with the people means that there's a culture. Huh. And then they begin to hear from God what this culture is like. It's a very bad culture. It's not a culture of restoration. It's a culture of corruption. These people were littering God's creation and creating this sick culture. I wouldn't be surprised if it was too far from ours. Well, it's a lot worse, but... there were definitely some similarities. And so this is what God tells them to do. If you're going to create a culture there, you've got to get rid of the people in your way. So do this. Deuteronomy 20 verse 16. (coughs) Tell me if this doesn't alarm you. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. In other words, if it breathes, kill it. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Those are all the nations living in Canaan. Destroy them all. Whoa. Whoa, whoa. So they come into this this massive land. Several nations live there. Families, babies. Yeah, their culture is a bit corrupt, but they've got real people there. And God leads them in and says, all right, here you are. I hope your swords are sharp because you're going to need them. There is going to be massive blood flow here. Everything that breathes, including animals, with a couple of rare exceptions. But God wanted everything annihilated. How is this a loving God is the question a lot of people struggle with. Atheist Richard Dawkins, if you've... If you're into any of that atheism stuff and defending it, you know who Richard Dawkins is. He's the leading atheist of the world right now. Um, he says <coughs> that this is divine genocide. That's his term, divine genocide. You know what genocide is? It's, it's basically the slaughtering of an entire people group. And he's calling this a, quote, loving God, obviously he's being sarcastic, who is commanding his holy people to commit genocide over these nations. Just kill them all. I'm tired of them. And that sounds really harsh. It sounds really mean. Divine genocide. But I want to show you that this is not divine genocide. For two reasons. It's not divine genocide. Because first, God is using Israel... to accomplish capital punishment on these people. Capital punishment. Follow this, okay? So yes, Israel's going in, and they're deliberately killing a people group. That is the definition of genocide. But, a further and deeper look reveals that the people they're slaughtering have a culture that is in complete rebellion with God, and is actually messing creation up. God's plan for humanity is destroyed in this culture. (coughs) In short, the Canaanites and all the nations in Canaan are siding with the serpent whom Adam sided with. They're breaking God's law. They're saying, We don't want God as king. So, what does God, the king who owns this land, have to do? If you rebel, if you commit treason against the king, what does every kingdom do? You execute those who commit treason. So God's using Israel to come and commit capital punishment against these people. Listen to how corrupt their culture was. This is all from Leviticus 20. They had child sacrifice. They had a god named Molech. And they, it was basically a huge idol. And in his belly was a huge furnace. And they would heat that thing up as hot as possible. And on his arm stuck out like this. Like a little ramp. And there's a little opening and the arms got really, really, really glowy red hot and they would take the babies and just put them on that arm and of course their flesh would sizzle on contact and would start to scream and cry and one account I read said that as the baby rolled down the arms into the furnace it actually, it was so hot that it began to shrivel enough to fit inside the hole child sacrifices in this culture and that was worship They also practiced witchcraft. Voodoo, calling on spirits, manipulating spirits, all sorts of things, black magic to get their way. And also, this is the one that touches home. (laughs) Free sexual, well, child sacrifice touches home too. We just have it in a different way. But uh, this one too, free sexual perversion, (laughs) including, it's all from the Vegas 20, including adultery, incest, that's a, Inter family relationships. Um, homosexuality and bestiality. Bestiality is doing it with an animal. Really perverted. So, I don't know why I can't keep a straight face on that one because honestly, it's so corrupt, it's just like unreal to me. But it happens. And honestly, when you think about it, happening is not funny. So, I just, it's one of those like twisted, I can't, yeah. And then Leviticus the 20 goes on to say, because these people do these things, I'm driving them out before you. Did you hear the language there? Because they're corrupt, because they're rebelling against me, I'm using you, Israel, as my rod to discipline them. So this is not genocide, it's capital punishment from the king himself issuing it. And what makes it different than genocide is that God holds Israel to the exact same standard he held the Canaanites to. Because when Israel began to do the same things, God sent Babylon and Assyria to do the same thing that Israel did to the Canaanites. They beat them up, blood was shed, and they kicked them out of the land. So because God held Israel to the same standard, it proves that this is simply God's law being executed. It's not genocide. Second reason can't be genocide. God has Israel drive out the nations because he wants to protect Israel from conforming to this corrupt culture. That's why he wants them to annihilate everything that breeds. Because you're starting a new culture and you can't have anything of this culture left. It has to be a fresh start or else you will be corrupted. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that Israel conquers the land, meaning simply that they hold control of it. But they do not drive out every single person. Little pockets of resistance remains. Meaning, their culture was not erased. It still existed. And eventually, this culture grew on Israel, and they began to adopt the culture, and Israel became corrupt themselves, and that's when Assyria and Babylon came and beat them all up and sent them into exile. This is why God wanted them to take this seriously. Everything that breathes, eradicate their culture, don't remember it anymore. As Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 20 is a verse I read that said that kill everything that breathes, but I didn't read you the last verse. The last verse says this. This is why you're killing everything that breathes. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. Destroy them all so that they may not teach you their corrupt culture. You're starting a different culture. That's why bloodshed. I'm going to read you guys a quote from James Hamilton Jr. who puts it very well. He says this about killing everybody. The conquest of Canaan enacts the glory of God's justice against those who look to worthless things to be for them what only God can be for them. This justice against the inhabitants of Canaan is intended to deliver Israel from harmful influence of idolatry. These are people that are finding happiness in something else that only God can give them. And he's saying this is dangerous if Israel sees, so just wipe them out. Israel, my goal for you is to restore humanity, the nations. You can't be like the corrupt nations. I have big things in plan for you. So that's why the huge (coughs) command to slaughter everything that breathes. Do not adopt a single part of their culture you're going to start a new one with me at the center. You're going to build it around the temple. You're going to build it around my glory. It's pretty intense. And it gets more intense when you realize that the church has been given the same mission. We're given the same mission to create a culture that invites nations to restoration. The difference is that God hasn't given us a place to do this in. Well, He has. It's called the world, but not a place like Canaan. He's given us a person to do it in. His name's Christ, Jesus. What Canaan was to Israel, what the land was for them, is what Jesus is for us. As Israel was in Canaan, we are in Christ. And we come into Christ with the mission of building a culture. That will restore the nations to God. So rather than being placed in Canaan to build this culture, we're placed in Christ to build this culture. And so our mission goes. Now, how exactly, Brandon, I want to make sure you guys see that this isn't just my ideas. Um, Christ is indeed our promised land. And I'll give you guys a couple of hints to why we think so. Um... Because there's no New Testament verse that you can specifically quote that says directly Jesus is the church's promised land. Nothing says that. But there's many hints that imply it. And so I'll give you five of these hints quickly. Why is Jesus our Canaan? Why is he our promised land? Number one, Jesus is our Joshua. (coughs) Joshua and Jesus... Jesus is the fulfillment of Joshua. Joshua led Israel into the promised land. Jesus is our promised land. Joshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus, which is a Greek name. Catch that? They're the same name. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. Both these names mean that God is salvation, or they also mean Savior. So Joshua comes on the scene with Israel and says, I'm Savior. I'm leading you to the promised land. Jesus steps in the scene and says, I'm Savior, I'm leading you to the promised land. I'm leading you to myself. So, Jesus is our Joshua. Number two, what it means to be in Jesus is what it means for Israel to be in the land. Why was Israel in the land? To demonstrate to the nations that restoration is what they need. And that's our job in Christ. God has put us in Christ to show the rest of the world that this is what God intended for humanity. What you guys have in Jesus, this is what huma- if you have him and live with him, this is what God intended for you to have. That's why you get Shalom type of peace when you come to Christ because you are back in connection with Eden in him uh, in a spiritual sense, and this will become very physical. Hopefully in a couple days, but it may be a couple of years too. You know what I mean. The end of the age. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, Christ is possessed the same way that Canaan was possessed. How is that? Well, Israel went into the promised land and God said, everything here is yours. Simply obey me and take it. So when I say go conquer that city, you just go do it and you won. So it's by faith in God's work that they took Canaan. How do we possess Christ? By faith in God's work, He went to the cross. He did the work, and He says, "Now, receive me by faith. Enter into me, and you will possess me, if you trust in My work for you." So we possess them both the same way. Number four, in Jesus we find our promised inheritance. The Promised Land is called the Promised Land because it was land that was promised first to Abraham, then to all his descendants. It's their inheritance. We are promised an inheritance. And it's Jesus. And Ephesians one verse three says this Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Everything God wants to give you is in Jesus. He's the inheritance package. He's the pink slip, if you will. <laughs> and it goes on in Ephesians one eleven. In Jesus we have obtained. And inheritance. And to take it one more step further, you guys remember in John 14:3 that Jesus says, I leave you to go prepare a place for you? You know what Jesus says there in verse 3? He says, I will come back and receive you to myself. Not, not, not take you to some distant location, I will receive you to myself. He is our inheritance. Don't think of some mansion in some golden street place. That is total tradition. Jesus says, I am your mansion. You will dwell with me. That is what you inherit. So sorry if you are looking for heaven for other things other than Jesus. You're not going to be happy with it. <laughs> and the fifth hint. The church enters Christ the same way Israel entered Canaan. How did Israel enter Canaan? I'm going to have to do this briefly. I almost did the whole message on this. So this is why I say I have to do it briefly. So instead we're going to look at this in about two minutes. So look at chapter 5. How did Israel enter Canaan? In 5 verse 2 it says this. They just crossed the Jordan River. They're in the land. And it says, At the time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and, that's right, circumcise the sons of Israel. (laughs) Um, They need to be circumcised. Well, how does that deal with Jesus? Because Colossians chapter 2 tells <coughs> us that Jesus is our circumcision. God doesn't command his people physically cut skin off of their body. He asks that that's done in the heart, and Jesus is the one that does that. So that's Colossians 2:11 through 12. Jesus is our circumcision. We're entering the same way as them. I'm look at five verse 10. <coughs> Passover. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover. So the second thing they did when they got into the land. Passover! Where they celebrate that they were freed from Egypt. Freed from their bondage. They killed the Passover lamb. What we looked at in a couple studies ago when we were in Egypt, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was killed for us to free us from our bondage of sin. And, And communion, which we took a few minutes ago, was instituted by Jesus in place of Passover. So Jesus fulfills Passover just like he fulfills circumcision. And then third, look at the manna in verse 12. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So they went from stale, rotten manna, which was good for them, but they complained about. It's like broccoli, I guess. <laughs> to eating the good stuff of the land. And that's what Jesus said. I read this for the congregation in John 6 at communion. Jesus essentially said, I am the new manna. So you come to me for life. Just like they're eating of the land, we eat of Jesus, our land. So Jesus fulfills the whole food issue with the promised land. So that's briefly the five hints why I see that Jesus and the promised land are the same thing. When we look at Israel and the promised land, we're looking at us in Jesus Christ. And so our commission is the same as Israel's. Go back to Joshua 1. Our commission is the same as Israel's. Look how God commissions Israel here in 1 verse uh, 2. Moses is dead. That always cracks me up. Just like that's how God opens the book. Moses is dead. It's like so sympathetic. Um, now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land. Key term: that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, into the land. What constitutes land here? What's in the land as they're going in? Nations and culture, right? That they have to go battle. Okay. Now verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses. I will be with you. So two key components here. You're going into the nations to change culture. And I will be with you. That's what God said to Israel. What did Jesus say to the church? Matthew 28 19. Listen to it. You guys know it. Go. That word's the same as there in 1 2 of um, Joshua. He says, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. You're going into the land, you're going into my mission for you, where there's nations, and you're going to make disciples. In other words, you're going to produce a culture for them. That's what disciples are, they're people that reflect a certain type of culture. You are doing the same thing Israel did, he says to them. And then he continues, and he says, teach them to obey all that I commanded you, to be baptized, so teach them, baptize them. And then he says at the end, behold. I am with you. Just as with Moses, I'll be with you, Israel. Church, I am with you, even to the end of the age. So, those parallels I show because we are carrying on Israel's commission. Israel failed, but Jesus came, and he's sending the church out to do that. We're going into the nations. We're to cultivate cultures that bring the nations into restoration with God. And Israel did it with swords, fighting, and blood. (laughs) We do it with the sword of the spirit, with teaching and baptizing, Jesus said. So their physical warfare for us becomes a spiritual warfare. Do we kill people? Yeah, but not their flesh. Because Ephesians 6 says we wage not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. We're killing people's pride. We're introducing them to the crucified Christ who says, you will be crucified with me, that you can be resurrected into a new person. So our mission is very much the same, but Jesus has fulfilled it for us. He took the death for humanity that we simply identify with his death now. So that's what we're doing. Okay, so here we go. Let's, let's close this up. How then shall we... Cultivate a culture of restoration. Now, that's a pretty big task. What do we do? The Bible doesn't tell us directly, it simply tells you how to live and where to use our creativity. We're to be cultivators, culture makers, creative people. But I think there's two very important basic steps in Joshua 1, and then the second one's in Joshua 5. I'll show them to you. So how do we cultivate a culture of restoration? Number one, cultivate a culture of restoration by intelligently, brain power here people, by intelligently meditating upon God's word. That's in verse 1, verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it at all that you may have good success wherever you go. I'm summarizing a little bit. Verse 8. This book of the law, which you guys hold in your hands, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night because this is going to give you success, Joshua. If you want to take the land, if you want to possess it, You want to cultivate a culture, you need this. And you need to abide in it and meditate on it intelligently. And I emphasize intelligently because I fear some people, like, well, I'm supposed to read the Bible, I'm a Christian, so John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Yay, thank you, Jesus, you love me. We move on with life. Intelligence. You need to think about what you read. How does this fit in my life now? What does God call me to do? How do I worship Christ through this Bible passage? And here's another challenge. Is don't be afraid of theology. I know most of you are going to pick up a theology book, and that's fine. I'm not telling you you should. But that's why I'm huge here on theology. You need to see the Bible as an intellectual book. It demands the mind to under, to, to see the big picture. I mean, yeah, simple enough that the heart can grab this basic little concepts. But, guys, you got to grow up. you got to get from milk to meat. you got to start using the mind, too, and seeing this is God showing me how to make culture here. And so I'm going to use this to guide my life. It teaches me God's story or his story. It teaches us this grand plan of God and shows us that we need to become a part of it. <clears throat> this is God's intent. This book is his intent. Because the Hebrew Bible, the Bible the Jews read, which is the same Old Testament we have, just the books are in different orders, but it's the same thing. Their Bible, Hebrew Bible, is divided into three parts. Law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the prophets, Joshua on, and the writings, Psalms on. I bring this up because at the very beginning of these three parts, there is one common thread linking them. Well, there's maybe a few, but one at the very beginning. It's called the Word of God. Think about Genesis 1. What opens up? God said, and the Word creates. You get to Joshua chapter 1, and what do we see? The Word of God. Joshua, hold to this, meditate on it, trust it. Do not swerve from it. And then Psalms chapter 1. What do you read when you open up Psalms chapter 1? Blessed is the man who meditates on the law, who takes the word of God and sinks, sinks it in, drinks it in, soaks it in, drink, soak, sinks it in. Um, He will become like a what? Like a tree planted by rivers of water. And the idea is that you'll become a man who's rooted in Eden. You will be a restored person. And so all three sections of the Hebrew Bible start off by saying this is important. The words you're reading and they are the anchor. They're where our roots are to dig in. It's how we discover the story of God that we can understand what he's up to and why we're here. So Joshua hold to this. You will cultivate a culture of restoration if you hold to the word of God. Second. Cultivate a culture of restoration by readily surrendering to the worship of God. Readily surrendering to the worship of God. Chapter 5. This is the part we read, verse 13-15. through 15. If, if the Bible is where we discover the story of God, worship is where we discover our place in the story of God. And that's what Joshua discovers in chapter 5. It's a crazy scene. I want you to imagine it. Joshua is there alone on a hill perhaps. He's diligently creating their strategy to overtake Jericho. I can just see him on a hill. He can see the city just not too far down in the future, in the distance. And he's just looking at it and he's studying the walls and he's looking at the weaknesses and how the gates operate and how the people operate and he's taking notes. And as he's diligently writing down the strategy, he licks the pen and you know all the things they do, he scratches his head, he looks up again to see the city and boom, there's an angel. He's terrified because it's not just like a, Joshua, I'm here to help you. It's an angel who looks mean and imposing. He has a sword drawn and it looks like he's ready to run it through Joshua. And Joshua is a man. He's a warrior. He doesn't say, whoo! Like Michael Jackson would do. <laughs> he gets up, and with I'm I assuming with his hand on the hilt of his sword, just ready to like thrust it through this guy, he walks up to him and says, Whose side are you on? Mine or theirs? But I love the answer. that has always cracked me up. The angel answers, No. <laughs> There's like, this, this was an either or question, bud. No, both. (laughs) But as commander of the armies of the Lord I have now come. What what is the angel telling Joshua? I think he's telling him this. Joshua, you have the wrong question. The question is not Is God on my side or on their side? The question is Joshua, are you on God's side or are you on your side? Joshua sees the angel and he thinks, oh, okay, is God going to bless me? But the angel turns around and says, no, Joshua, the idea is, are you going to follow me? Another way to put this is, the angel is telling Joshua, it's not about putting God in your story, it's about putting yourself in God's story. Big difference. (coughs) If you... Merely put God in your story, this is what you do. My life, my plan, my story, and here's God, and I love him, and he's important. But it's just this private thing. I read my Bible on my own, I pray, I go to church, and that's God. And then I have the rest of my story. That's putting God in your story. But true worship and true surrender reverses this. And it says, I'm taking my story off. And he takes the sandals off and falls on his face and worships and says, I want myself in your story. And the difference is this. God's on every single page because it's his story. And Joshua is now discovering where he fits in the story, not where God fits in his story. So God's no longer this little private thing. God's as public as the land is public. So the angel saying, here I am, you're coming into the land, and I am guarding it because this is God's land. And the only way you're going to have success in this land to produce a culture that that restores the nations is if you see yourself in God's story and understand where you fit in it. He's not serving you. Well, he is in the salvation sense. But you're following his story. And through your surrender and worship, you understand where you fit. And God becomes... Not just privatized. Everything about your life is his story. And so you can't help but everywhere you are, your culture is one of God and restoration. And you're fulfilling the commission and watching people change their minds about our Savior and trying to include them into the restoration you've experienced. So, do so by finding your place in God's story. That's a great place to start. And the rest, we use our creativity. So, Father, I pray that you go before us, be our sword, be our fighter, and help us to dispossess the possessed and corrupt culture we live in, and to create and cultivate a new culture of restoration where everyone around us can find you. So, Use us as a group, Father, to cultivate cultures that restore nations. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.